everyone, welcome back to the Fashion Cupboard podcast. Today we're going to be speaking to Rachel Ingram, whose career has spanned from so many different amazing places. Rachel's currently the editor-in-chief of Thread Styling, which is an online social commerce platform. Not only is Rachel incredibly cool and incredibly chic, she's also just super savvy about everything from different parts of the industry. She has so much experience and I hope you really love our interview today as much as I loved recording it. So here we go. Hey Rachel. Hi Emma, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm good, haven't seen you for a while. I know, I feel like I've just seen everyone on Zoom and it's just not the same. <laughs> yeah, not the same. It's not the same as being in a thread studio. Very glam, yeah. I mean, I must say, the Threads fashion cupboard is probably the most amazing fashion cupboard I've yeah. ever been into. It was not good for my shopping habits working, <laughs> working at Threads. Yeah, and also it's like the kind of stuff that you can never really afford. So it's actually even worse than like seeing loads of Zara where you're like, oh my God, okay, I'll splurge, where it's like, it's like Chanel, Hermes, Chanel, Hermes, Chanel, Hermes, Louis Vuitton. 100%, and you like start to convince yourself, you're like, okay, but the Bottega small pouch actually yeah. isn't that bad. And then you're like, it's still 900 pounds. <laughs> How did you get started in the industry? And what advice would you give to someone wanting to get into it? I started when I was at uni. I, I was like, I need to work at the magazine. Um, I just was like, this is my calling. I need to do it. I need to work in fashion. And I thought, to be honest, I thought it was all being a fashion writer. I didn't realize there was such a thing as a stylist. So I was like, okay, how am I going to get in? Like, who do I know that's ever worked at a magazine? I was like, that, you've got to find that in somewhere. And the only person I knew was someone who wrote for the law section of um, the Times. It's a friend of a friend's friend's friend. And, um, and I was like, please, you've got to get me in. And they were like, look, I can get you in for one day only. And I was like, that's fine. That's all I need. That's all I need. So I literally turned up at the legal department of the Times newspaper and like, I was just so out of place and they looked at me like what are you doing here and I was like hey I'm here for work experience and they just put me on a computer and they were like we don't really have anything to do for you so like just sit there but obviously the night before I'd researched everyone in the fashion department I had all their names written down um, and I just went on the internal email server and I emailed the fashion desk and I was like hey I'm a law intern kind of um so I just wonder if I could come and meet you because I really want to work in fashion Anyway, and they were like, yeah, of course, thinking I was like some internal law intern for the last six months. And I just went, I basically was like, sorry, guys, I'm, I'm just going downstairs to meet the fashion team. And they were like, yeah, yeah, be gone, be gone. Um, and I went down there and I basically never, never went back. And that was it. And I, and I met people down there and I literally worked there for about a week. And then I got another internship from that and it, it sky, yeah. skyrolled. So it's yeah. good. That's so funny. We actually have that in common because I started my first ever internship I was meant to be a features intern and I was so desperate to like get into the fashion team that I heard the fashion director speaking about how like her assistant they had a new assistant and, the, and she hadn't shown up or he hadn't shown up that day and I was like oh my god now's my chance and I remember walking over my hands were like <laughs> and I was like I'm just gonna do it I'm just gonna do it and I walked over and I was like hi I'm the features intern I'd literally been there for about an hour you know what though it's so scary because those people are like goddesses to you when you start out they're like they're like superheroes and to have the balls to do it it's so intimidating I'd had to psych myself up the night before yeah. I was just under my breath going Alice Olins Alice Olins she's the one like I knew she was the fashion editor at the times and I was like Alice Olins I just have to find Alice Olins yeah um, but you've got to be brave 
definitely also like just to do your research and to know what you're walking into i think that's so important even now anywhere you go anyone you meet just to do your due diligence on who you're speaking to totally because if you want it you have to you've got to know the questions to ask the people to speak to and i'm not a networking person i do get quite nervous in those situations but you just no matter who you are you've got to psych it up and, and kind of do it yeah, definitely. And also, I think it shows initiative if you can like walk into an office space and know who everyone is, what their positions are. I remember at Grazia, we used to give people a really crap drawing of the fashion desk and where everyone sat. And I once, I gave it to someone and she was like, oh, so where does Fenella sit? And I was like, oh my God, how do you, like, how do you even, I was so impressed. You Good care. on you. Yeah, that's what it is. They care. Totally. Did you ever work in a fashion cupboard? Oh my God, I lived in a fashion cupboard. I think I was in a fashion cupboard for most of 20, 2008 and 2009, maybe yeah. even 2009. I started at my first, I, I mean, obviously at the times I was in the fashion cupboard and then I went to one of the girls who'd just come from Red Magazine and everybody knows I've got such a small industry. So she'd like passed me on to Red Magazine. I hadn't even heard of Red at the time. It's quite, it's quite a kind of middle-aged for me. I was 18 or 19 and I turned up there and I basically was in their fashion cupboard for a year and they just launched their like paying interns because I was like I can't stay in a fashion cup for a year unpaid and then they just started paying us minimum wage which was like a few pounds an hour um and I went on their year program and yeah and I loved it absolutely loved it like it for me it was it was a bit like an extension of uni Mm -hmm. you know and I was really lucky I was living at home um so I, I could do it. And like, to be on minimum wage, like you can't do that unless you're living at home. And I 100%. totally, and even then it was hard. Like my money just went on work. Like it went on work and lunch. Yeah. And like, you know, buying one ASOS item every once in a while to look cool at work because yeah. you wanted to look cool as, as well. 100%. I remember all my friends were like getting their first jobs in like marketing or advertising or, you know, PR. And they were all earning proper money. And at one point I remember actually, so I was living at home, I remember crying to my mum just being like, it's you know it's not fair like I really want to be able to buy nice things too and she was like yeah but you're doing what you love and yeah and this is something I've spoken about before with a couple of guests is like unless you have that kind of stability of being able to live at home I was the same I lived at home when I interned and my dad actually used to work in town so he would often just drop me at work which be able to have that is so rare I think if you don't have that, if you don't live in London, I've, I've said before, like having met people that have worked several jobs just to work in a fashion cupboard, you have to be so committed if you yeah, don't you have that because for such a long time, it is not a lot of money and a lot of kind of time. It takes like, you know, a lot of expectation. When I was at Red, one of the other interns, she would go from Red at six o'clock, she'd go to Selfridges and she'd work, you know, an evening shift at Selfridges yep. and work to pay her internship. I remember the fashion editors at Red going, she leaves at six on the dot every day. That's not committed. And that was, that was yeah. real. And that is why, genuinely, that's why there's no diversity in magazines and in the industry. And it's so limited because it's everybody from a social economic background who can afford to work for free. Definitely. And, and that's, that is it. And like, it's, it's a controversial thing to say, but Condé Nast, when I was there, was full of people whose daddies were paying for them to be there. And unless people say it, it's not going to change. I also, I worked at Condé Nast, I interned there and I remember walking into one very high profile magazine and 
it being exactly what you've just described yeah as an intern you know you look at these people and you like almost aspire to be them you're like oh my god I want to walk into the office in a pair of Gucci loafers and go to Kent on the weekend but like it was like made in Chelsea it is it totally is and and it's really intimidating I'd say as well when you're first getting into it because it's like you might not know what these people are on but you know the industry doesn't pay a lot so it's like how do I get to that point? How am I even able to, to do that if I don't have like the financial means yeah. for that? And it's also that, that they all know each other, you know, like there's a big thing of network. So there's a big thing of like, everybody at Condé Nast comes recommended by yeah. somebody that mummy knows mummy and daddy knows daddy. And actually it's very, very hard if you're not, I mean, look, I, I can't speak for now, but I'm speaking for 10 years ago, but it's very, very hard if you're not in that inner circle. And yeah. again, actually, it was something I was going to talk about later, but there's a very limited HR. Well, when I was there, again, I have to say this is when I was there. There was there was no HR. There was no kind of fair recruitment policy. Like people used to joke about the recruitment at Conte Nast. And it's a real thing. It was a real problem. And yeah. I was overlooked. I would work my ass off, Emma. I would literally be there working all hours. And then I, if I was freelancing, and then I'd get like a paid job for Zara or something and go off yeah. and do that. And I'd come back someone whose mummy had recommended them by someone else had got my job. And I was like, oh, well, that's that for me, isn't it? Because it's so kind of a lot of it. And I I can speak from obviously my experience there as well. Kind of seems quite elitist. It's like it's very kind of like one type, one person, one look. And I think that's really tough when you don't fit into that. And also... (laughs) HR that's a huge issue in like editorial because even from where like I've worked I don't think I've ever worked with an HR department I didn't even know like HR departments were really a thing until my friends used to be like oh have you taken it to HR and I'm like what HR Susie and she's only in on a Tuesday for an hour like it's not it's not seen as like a big issue I'd say and a lot of these places you know they have lawyers that they go to to run stories past and they have people but they don't actually have anyone that you can go to and you can just be like you know this is the issue or this is the problem or because normally they just don't exist. Mm. Do you know I applied for a job as a fashion uh, as a fashion editor and I was told by in my like review of my application I was told by the fashion director who was Jewish by the way that the, re- the first thing she said, the reason you're not getting this job is because you, you told me you won't work on a Friday night and I just can't have someone in my team that's not flexible like that. I feel so angry about that. Yeah. I was so angry that I didn't know who to go to because there's no HR in, in these magazines. You know, there's no, there's no HR system. Yeah. And you and I are raising all these issues of, uh, you know, a lack of inclusion and a lack of diversity. And we are white middle class girls. You know, so if we're highlighting that as a problem, imagine what it's like for 90% of the UK. Like, yeah, like that's how big the problem is that we can see there's a lack of inclusion and lack of diversity and we feel it. It, It's so messed up. A hundred, hundred percent. And like, I also think that sometimes when it comes to these things, you know, when I had a similar situation, I really didn't know who to turn to because I was like, if I don't do this, if I don't jeopardize this or that, like, I won't, you know, I'll be scolded for it and I'll never be promoted again. And like all of this, all of this stuff. And I was just like, I don't really know what to do. It's a lawless environment. Completely. It is kind of going back to, obviously you worked as as an assistant. I previously worked as an assistant. How would someone stand out to you? Um, I would say work hard. Like that is number one. Just literally work your ass off. You've got one opportunity. 
often as an assistant or as an intern when you're kind of in a placement you're meeting new people you're kind of going from place to place the harder worker gets recognized it's it's a it's a very simple fact um also i know this sounds weird but like expect nothing like you're there you're the thing you're getting out of it is you're getting to meet people and you're getting contacts and you're building up it's the start of your career you're building up your kind of black book yeah. so you're not owed anything you are that's your repayment essentially mm -hmm. um and, and money because you shouldn't work or intern or assist for free at all and also be the best you know you've got to be the best because if you're not the best then the person that was there last year is going to get the job when it opens so you just have to be the best and everyone says well it's in any job isn't it like at the beginning of your career you have to work the hardest because you have to be seen and you have to be you have to get the job yeah more people at that point to compete with definitely and i also think like now more than ever there are so many people vying for the same jobs that it's like yeah. if you won't do it someone else will 100 percent, 100 percent. but that should not mean that people have to work for free no that no 100 percent. a lot of these places seem to think that it's okay just to be like okay like doors are open you know there might it's almost like they dangle the opportunity of a job in front of you but most and of the time they just for it as well like Absolutely. that's what that's what i found very hard as an assistant so i found it hard to have this mindset of i should be grateful to this company for employing me when actually it was bloody good and i yeah. worked so hard and i really cared and i wanted to be the best and so i gave it my all and actually I shouldn't be grateful. I should be, it was a reciprocal thing. They were getting a huge amount out of me. Sometimes you forget your worth when you're at these places because you're working so hard and because it's not really being noticed or you don't feel like you're being appreciated, you almost second guess yourself and you're like, well, maybe I'm not working as, maybe I'm not working as hard, even though you know that you are and you know that you're doing the best job you can. Yeah. But it's just, you feel like you're just not being appreciated at all. Obviously, we've just discussed, you know, be the best and work the hardest. What do you think are like the most essential skills or a piece of knowledge you would give to someone maybe starting out now? So hard work, number one, like really whatever you're set to do, identify yeah. who your key stakeholders are in that business. You know, there's no point doing loads of odd jobs for someone that's not necessarily going to notice. Um, so identify who those key stakeholders are and work hard and talk to them identify who the boss is and introduce yourself on the first day and yes. say it's so lovely to meet you and thank you for you know giving me this opportunity and I, I i hope we could touch base again during my time here have that confidence in yourself and then that also leads on to communication so communicating in the right way so notice what the notice how people communicate in that business and jump on that so if everyone's very casual with each other then you can be more casual and you can drop the serious formalities. And it almost is a sign of sometimes that immaturity of being very dear sirs, where you need to be like, hello, I'm blah, blah. But if everybody is quite formal, stay formal. Don't be sending around lols on email to the whole business when that's not how people work yeah. in that business. So really read the room and read that environment. And communication really is key because you, you've got a period of time where you have to make yourself seen and heard and... Mm -hmm and show how brilliant you are. So never be afraid to, you know, whoever you report into, never be afraid to take them all the successful things you've done over that last six month period and go, this is what I've done. And I'm really proud of it, you know, and, and be, and be your own champion as well. Look, you have to love what you do as we've discussed earlier. Like there are sacrifices to be made at the beginning of your career. It's less well paid, especially in the fashion industry. It's less well paid. It's, it's a lot of work. It's a, it, you know, it's a difficult graph. So 
you have to love what you do. From a sense of skills, I think that as long as you live and breathe and die fashion, you don't need a fashion degree. It's, it's about those other things. It's about who you are as a person and really wanting it and really giving yourself to it. I mean, I did history of art at uni and often when I speak to people, they're like, how did you do it? And I'm like, I think a lot of it is just people skills. It's just going in somewhere and like you said, reading the room, seeing what the atmosphere is like and just kind of joining in with that. When I had my first job, I worked at this magazine and their kind of culture was very much to go out after work and to, to drink. And like that really wasn't me at all. Like I really didn't love going out to like a bar and drinking and getting drunk. And they all had so much fun together. And, you know, looking back now, I kind of excluded myself from that because it wasn't very me. So I just kind of hop on the tube home and, and that yeah. would be that. And then Emma, the next... I smoked. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell my mum. I smoked for about three years because yeah. everyone was smoking. And yeah. so I didn't even really like it. I mean, it was, it was quite nice, but on shoots, everyone would go for a cigarette. So you know yeah. what I did? Yeah, I <laughs> because and I, that is really not career advice on how to get a job no 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 it's not <laughs> don't take up smoking if you not listen to that but, or but that is an example of like or drinking it's yeah. an example of joining the culture of kind of what was going on and that's absolutely a really and also feeling like you really desperately kind of want to be a part of it and it's kind of coming back to like imposter syndrome I'd say you know if I'm seen outside smoking with like the editors then it kind of makes me fit in with them and like for me I didn't I took myself out of that and by default I then almost excluded myself from that and then I moved to Grazia and I turned to um, one of my colleagues who was sat next to me and I was like there no drinks after work and she was like no we all go home and I was just like thank god <laughs> I was like I was like this yeah but genuinely I just remember feeling like yeah. I'm fit for yeah, me it was just kind of I work so hard and I really want to get on with my colleagues but I I just don't want to go out after work and drink yeah but you do find your play you know I I'm like you I've never been the kind of go out after work for drinks person and at f you know that was always hard and also I'm Jewish so on a Friday night I go home for Friday night dinner yeah and at the beginning I used to find that very intimidating to say sorry I'm not going to be joining because I go home and, and I was very strict with it in the sense that that was my kind of principle of what I did but then by the end I realized it doesn't actually matter it doesn't matter because if you work hard and you're good at your job people won't care if you go home on Friday night and you don't join the drinks and it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect it in the long run. It's a very, very short-term thing. And you've got to be yourself. And as long as you're yourself, you know, I stopped smoking. Um, as long as you're <laughs> yourself, you, you, will get, you will get by and you will get through and you will be successful. I am who I am. And I go home, I'm the same. I go home on Friday nights. I always have done. I've always made it very clear from the get-go, you know, this is what I'm happy to do this, 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 and this. But on Friday nights, I go home for dinner and that's, that's just how it is. To be just really secure in yourself and to understand that I am giving something to this company and I feel I feel good enough about that that I don't have to do things I don't want to do but I'm moving away a little bit from the editorial world how did you make the decision to leave that world and join the world of luxury online fashion obviously you were at Net-a-Porter now you're at Threads um, but how did you make that jump? So We've discussed a lot about the challenges of the editorial world and I would say that I was quite challenging a few years because when there's not many jobs I would say it's almost a toxic environment because everybody's vying for the same jobs. I'm going to speak frankly because you know but but you know you do have that sense of like everybody's going for the same roles and there's about three roles in the whole industry the whole British industry and there's 
about 15 people who are super qualified for it and it's very competitive and that can really knock your confidence yeah so that was really challenging and then also we've also mentioned that there's a very there's not much feedback and there's not an HR structure and there's very little management in, in editorial and I also found that quite difficult because I never really knew where I stood or how I was doing or whether I was successful or not. And it was, you know, you had this almost industry where you'd go off, you'd do this editorial shoot and then you used to send it to your editor and you'd wait for feedback. Yes. And you'd wait. And if you didn't hear anything, you'd be like, am I not hearing anything because I haven't seen it yet or because I don't like it. And then you'd get like a message from their PA, like she loved it. It's fantastic. You'd be like, oh my God. Yeah. And it was literally like that. And that's not a healthy way to live. And that's not a healthy way to set your team up for success. Completely. So that's, I guess, one part of it. But then the other part of it was I looked at the five-year plan for me. And I was like, I really, I sat there, my boyfriend, so my husband now, but my boyfriend at the time when I were looking and I was like, where are you going to be in five years? Like, what's, what's your job? And I was like, God, I, I cannot see the magazine I'm at at the moment being here in five years time I literally can't yeah. see because it had got smaller and smaller and smaller hence the lack of jobs and he was like well you kind of got to do something about that so I thought okay well who's doing well <laughs> who's you know, I made a strategic move I was yeah. who's successful who's making money I really wanted to get some business experience and really understand like the retail side of it and yeah. to have something a little you know magazines are very slow moving and even still like they were always the late adopters they were the late adopters of technology they were late adopters of in of, of uh, online websites like when i was at glamour i remember they were like we're launching an app and i was like well can you click through to buy and they were like oh no and it was funny because that was like well, don't be stupid we're not going to click through to buy like why would we do that yeah. and, and it was very slow so i was but i was really you know the net supporting opportunity the excitement of you know, understanding when you style something, how that then works from a shopping habits perspective and understanding the people that are buying it and who your customer is, which yeah. is a very different piece to magazines. You don't really know your reader. You say you do, but you don't really know your reader because you can't see who they are. Um, you know, and then also I wanted, I wanted that career trajectory. I wanted to understand, I wanted to be able to see growth and I wanted to understand what my next move could be. And I wanted to know if I work hard, yeah. what will happen. And that happens in a business, in a real business, you work hard, you get a promotion. Yes. And a promotion means a pay rise and getting a pay <laughs> rise means you're on that next step up your career ladder. And yeah. I was so excited about that. I mean that I'd never had that in magazines ever. So that for me was like, this dream come true having that kind of prospect of actually I can move up you know I don't have to be an assistant for five years and then move to another magazine where maybe I can get a junior fashion editor position or a stylist position it is so difficult and I think that that is like the main that I think that was the most difficult part for me when I used to work in editorial was well when am I going to be able to move up when am I going to be able to be an assistant and then a st it's not like in a normal job where you have a main kind of assistant and then you have the job above that and the job above that and you can actually move your way through it's kind of you know you're an assistant for three years maybe if the person above you leaves you might be able to take that job but if maybe just not, maternity cover for about six months and then they come back and then you'll move back again yeah and then that's it and i think to be able to be at a company or be at a place where you know you're actually able to grow and kind of look at your five-year plan and be like well okay there is a plan now it's not just i'm closing my eyes and crossing my fingers and hoping for the best yeah. it's so important 
but also that because no one at the top moves in magazines because there aren't many jobs yeah. so no one none of the fashion directors ever left when i was there i mean no one left no one could grow because the top stayed on so there was a lid and you could only get this far and everyone just bounced about here yeah. and they used to say you know to the fashion sisters go away work somewhere else and come back for you you know apply go away get other experience then come back and apply for an editor role here but that was purely because they didn't have any jobs there and no one had any jobs anywhere else so yeah you all these amazingly talented people just kind of fled the nest because there was nowhere for them to go and nowhere for them to be used definitely and also i think now more than ever like you said with the app these magazines some of them aren't going to survive much longer i mean you've already had the closure of like marie claire and look and all of those other magazines that just kind of cease to exist now mm. in style i actually interned there the week that they folded and i was in the fashion cupboard and it was like my maybe like my second day and the fashion director or someone in the team walked into the fashion cupboard and they were like do you have any boxes and i was like what and then someone else came in crying and they'd all been made redundant except for like hannah and josh because they were keeping mm -hmm. them on to do in style online or however it was going to be next and then actually hannah came to work for me at net porter because I knew her from the industry and she was like, I really fancy, you know, a bit of a change. Yeah. Went to Nettaporte and worked there. And then she's now at Threads with me. You're so right in that they are the late adopters. And I think once most of these magazines turn into online only platforms, there's going to be even less job roles because one person is going to do beauty, fashion and lifestyle online. And there's going to be one role for all of that. So it's yeah. tough. On that note, what would you say is the most challenging part of your job? It's a difficult question. I think when you're a creative, you get your kick out of doing the creative stuff. So you get your kick out of being on set, the visual, the, the styling, the, not even that, like the concepting and the briefing and all of that and the yeah. execution. And then as you grow in your career, you actually lose parts of that. So the more successful you are, the more you step away from what you used to do. So that's yeah. actually a really big challenge. It's been a big learning for me. Um, and so now, I mean, I was fashion director before I went on maternity leave and I've come back as editor in chief. And in a way, as fashion director, I could still kind of get my nose in the detail of like, what are you shooting? How do the outfits look? You know, overseeing it from a creative side. But now in my new role, I've got so much more to do that I can't get in the detail anymore. And yeah. I have to rely on that and have a much more strategic vision. I have to, you know, look more at the strategy, at the process, at spreadsheets, and it's, it's a much less creative role. So that is a challenge, I think, for all creatives, unless you stay as a freelance stylist or, a, you know, a freelance creative director and you yeah. grow your profile and you build your brand like that. If you work for a company and you grow in that company, you lose the creativity. So that's probably the biggest challenge. And you have to get your head around a whole new set of challenges of things that you're, they're not innate to you as a, as a creative person. I find that at Threads, you know, I'm very much, I have to work in tandem with a lot of people within the business because, and I also have to be really honest about what my skill set is. And yes. my skill set is not spreadsheets so I always say that my CMO is my manager and I say to her like you know you could show me this in a spreadsheet but it's much better if you just tell me like just just talk what does this mean and I will get it and then I can make actions and then I'm really good at decisions and strategy and all of those things but I can't and and that's why I work very closely with our production director because she can tell me what that means and then I can tell her what I want and we can action it together so it's finding your stakeholders who are going to support you in the areas that are not your strengths as well 
definitely I couldn't agree more I think having that kind of support I'm very very much the same I need to see something like a physical example I can't just look at numbers and be like okay this and this and this equals this and this and this I need to actually know what that means in order for it to translate obviously your role now covers such an array of things what would you say is your favorite part of your job that's probably still the creative stuff so as a company threads is we work in a few different ways so we work as an editorial platform we create amazing editorial beautiful styled shoots and those will go out on our social accounts and they'll go out direct to clients and then we work as a personal shopper so we have a whole team of shoppers who from that content will literally find the pieces that people want so we put an amazing editorial story up someone swipes up they ask for the shoes from it and our shoppers will source the shoes they'll pay via whatsapp and it will get delivered to their house it's very easy social commerce it's called so we have obviously our editorial then we have our partnerships and our media business so in the same way that a magazine would have um advertising and advertorials we do we we sell our media so we work with amazing brands like tiffany and bulgari and we'll create incredible social media campaigns for them that will go out on our media but are very in line with our threads aesthetic and our threads brand and that gives them access to not only our audience but also our clients as well so it's a really tangible place for them to spend their money um, and their advertising budgets so this for me is it's just super fun because i love dreaming up this kind of collaboration between you know burberry and and what does that mean to the threads client and how is our looking at the data how are our clients spending on burberry what are they buying and then saying to burberry look this is where you've got to position your advertising with us and this is how you've got to do it and this is what our clients care about and really working to come up with these incredible concepts um that are going to to really resonate and and then i love that with um, you know with a company like threads you can then see the results so you know you come up with this idea you come up with this brief and then you literally watch the conversations come in via whatsapp of like you know can i buy this can i buy this and that's so exciting and that's such a it's such an amazing next step, you know, yeah. Porter did that a bit because I could see on a broader scale what was selling from the styling and magazines did that not at all because you had no idea. And, and it's so exciting to see at this point, like the real direct results of that. So um, I think that for me is, is kind of the most exciting part as well. I think I think that was definitely the coolest part when I when I came to work at Threads for a little. I just remember being like so in awe of the fact that you could just swipe up on a story and and it was it was so instant that it was you don't have time to even like really think about it. You're just like I love this bag. I mean, obviously you do have time to think about it if you don't have the disposable <laughs> income of like five grand or whatever it is. But like you know, some people can just open a story see something they like swipe up and shop it and and it's anything from like a top to trainers to a really cool bag to a watch to it's everything but what's interesting we're actually really diversifying our business now so we work with so many contemporary brands brands that you'd see on netta porter you know the the kind of things that you would like splurge on like an anushka jumper or or um, an Altazara skirt. And those brands that traditionally haven't necessarily been threads, and we've really built up that part of our business. Yeah. And for us, like, those are the things we can source people really easily. You know, we don't charge anyone to find it. So you're paying the same price you pay on Netporter or you pay on matches. Yeah. There's no kind of fees, there's no, and so it's making this accessible to everyone now. It's not just buying the Hermes bag and, yeah. and have, it's literally seeing, I don't know, almost like an influencer star shot on 
on our threads account and going, oh, I really love that look and buying the 200 pound sandals and the 400 pound dress and having your summer wardrobe done. And that, that for me is also really exciting because it means that I can be a threads customer as well. Yeah, you know? definitely. Super rich. It's like, I can do it. And maybe I'll buy the Prada bag that goes with it as my, you know, <laughs> but, but I, can, I can be a client too. Yeah, definitely. And also now you've obviously got like Threads Gen and Threads Homeware and Threads Men. Like there's such a huge spectrum that Threads cover now. And I just think it's so cool. And I love the way that the content's shot. It's also like fun and exciting and engaging. And I think now more than ever, we're interacting so much online. I mean, obviously everyone being at home even more so because our whole lives now are online. I just remember there actually used to be a website where you could drag something you like so if you saw a picture of someone on pinterest or something you could drag it into this website and it would give you it would try and give you where the bag was from or similar and i just remember like oh god the amount of time i would spend on like tumblr like dragging pictures in being like where are these jeans from and it kills me an influencer doesn't tag something it kills me yeah and that is what is our most engaged content you know our clients love seeing a shot of either an influencer or one of our team who you know all look like influencers and they want to know where is that dress from and then the best part is when it's you know a 400 pound dress they can then buy it in that same conversation and you don't have to go out of one thing into another thing into another thing get your credit it's very user-friendly it's you're, you're in one space and totally. you're done like we just said like you can shop the chair that the influence is sitting on like it's literally the whole image is shoppable yeah. it's so dangerous because it's yeah. so accessible on that note what would you say are the key items that someone should have in their wardrobe that's a really really hard question um I don't necessarily think it's about the pieces. I think it's about buying things that feel like you and yeah. staying, like we've said before, staying true to your personal style and your personal brand. The things that I would buy are very me and not necessarily someone else. And, and the most stylish people I know are people that really know what works for them and what, what looks good on them and not buying into the trends and not buying things that are really seasonal. Like I always try and buy things that, are right for me, not the trends of the season. So yeah. I know at the moment, like all the gorgeous cut out skinny crop top things, like I'm not gonna wear them. That's not me. That's not yeah. my style. That's not my shape. Yeah. And so I always stay clear of trends that aren't right for me. Um, I would always say though, invest in bags and shoes. That's the key thing to me. Like I don't ever buy high street shoes ever. I really don't because I believe, I mean, and I buy trainers, like I buy Adidas and like trainers, yeah. but I, I wouldn't buy a pair of shoes from Zara because I like my shoes to last and I wear my shoes for years. I wear my shoes season after season and year after year and I pull out the same sandals I bought two years ago and then when I'm done with them I sell them. I had the Chanel Dad sandals for a couple of years. I sold them months ago on Vestiaire and I just bought a new pair of Hermes sandals and I will wear them this summer and I will probably wear them next summer and then I'll probably on vestiaire so it's buying those pieces that are they're like the foundations of your wardrobe mm-hmm. and then, you know i i'm privy to a zara pair of jeans every once in a while or like a you know or a, a high street jumper like h&m sometimes do a great knit okay. and, I, and i and i love those pieces but the reason they look sophisticated is because my shoes are expensive or my bag is expensive and that's dressing up those pieces that for me is the best way to build a wardrobe those foundations 
Yeah, I think it just elevates what you're wearing when you just have those small pieces that kind of just, you know, you could be wearing an all grey tracksuit, but actually throw on maybe it's like a pair of expensive hoops, a pair of really nice boots or like a bag, and all of a sudden the whole look just looks very stylized. For me, I love a pair of like stomping boots. That's just very me. That's very mm. my style. And so I personally would have invested in like an expensive pair of you know really good boots because I know that I'll wear them every winter and that's just me so I always buy my boots and my sandals early so I buy my yeah. boots sometimes in I bought my I bought those Prada do you know those big chunky monolith boots so I bought them in August as soon as they came in because I was like I'll never get my house in them again yeah and then I bought my sandals just literally this week so both yeah. through three <laughs> but because I know that they're the things I want and I know I want them and I've looked at them and I've researched them and I know they're the right piece for me. Yeah. And I'll buy them in the season. Then often I'll build my outfits around those pieces as well because I can't afford to have 10 totally. of those. One, so 100% the Prada loafers at the moment I'm like lusting after them I'm like they're amazing but actually in reality I know I'll never wear them I'm gonna even think about buying them because as much as I love them on other people they're actually not me yeah totally I'm the I, same I, I, them. Them. <laughs> I bought them and I tried them on and I was like please be me and they weren't me yeah so. Don't but I also think that's really important as well kind of knowing like what, what sort of thing you actually think you'll wear as opposed to just being swept up in like a designer like you said a designer trend or a new pair of boots or trainers or sandals that everyone has their eye on that you're like oh god I need it and then you buy it and they sit in your cupboard for three years you don't wear it and that's the saddest thing and I actually just did an interview for Sherlock's about buying an investment bag yeah and in it and it's so true like I love that top handlebag trend I my life does not exist in that way like I do yeah. not have a hand to hold this bag <laughs> and so I bought a bag like that it's in my cupboard like I'm never ever gonna wear never. it yeah I'm because I'm never gonna wear it because I have one kid in one arm I have a bag of stuff in the other arm I have probably like a dessert that I'm taking to my mom in the other hand you know I'm, I'm always carrying a million things. I need something yeah. that goes body and I wear and that is what I now I'm you know in my 30s I've learned the lessons of the past yeah I will only buy the things I'm going to wear I will only buy the easy things the throw on things you know when I buy boots I buy zip boots you have to buy the things that suit your lifestyle because otherwise you won't wear them and if you don't 100%. wear it if you bought it you don't want it but it's really yeah. interesting because obviously at threads we source hard to find things so yeah. you know, we have a lot of knowledge on investing in the right bag and Chanel and Hermes are if you're spending money on a handbag and obviously this is substantial money so it's not casual like some Hermes bags are the same price as a car like yeah very expensive but if you're investing in a bag those are the two things to do and and Hermes some of their bags is one which is a two-tone bag yeah appreciate by 20% a year in value so hold that for 10 years it's it's an unbelievable increase in value so it is the same as investing in you know a, a property or a yeah. you know or, a, or an investment account they really are great things to invest in and and from my side I bought my first ever real paycheck and it was also all my birthday money from everyone and I remember yeah. like my first Chanel bag and I was so excited about it and I literally thought about it for like probably a year and I'd yeah. save Anyway, and I went and I bought the jumbo, I don't know what inspired me to do this, but I bought the jumbo <laughs> flap in a caviar leather with gold hardware, it was black. And it was so not me, it's such a mistake, but it was very cool. And I remember at the time, I mean, it's a long time ago, but it was the most money I'd spent on anything in the whole wide world. And I remember like my family were being like, you are disgraceful. <laughs> oh my God, yes. 
I, I never wore it really. And I sold it about eight years later for double the price I paid for it. Yeah. And I bought, I bought another Chanel bag that I wore. <laughs> like, it was the yeah. best investment I've ever made. It really was. If you yeah. invest in your, in your expensive items in your wardrobe, it's the same as investing in anything. Um, okay, so what has been your the highlight of your career so far? I wouldn't say it's anything like celebrity shoots or glamorous things related. I actually think it's some of the amazing trips I did as an assistant, like really back in the day. I used to assist the fashion director at Condé Nast Traveller, who is probably one of the best people to ever assist. Yeah. She was just one of those people that would like help you unpack and carry the bags with you and really treated you like an equal. Yeah. And I had some amazing trips. We, you know, we flew into Vietnam, we went to Namibia and sort of flew in these teeny tiny private planes across Namibia into the middle of the wilderness and then sort of landed there with nothing and got chased by left. I'm not even kidding. Like oh there was a lot like, but these incredible experiences. We, yeah. we shot with tribes people. We, wow. I mean, so amazing. We, and I think those have been some of the most memorable parts of my career. You know, those are the things that stick out as um, really exciting opportunities. With Threads, we just went to, well, just a couple of years ago, we did this wonderful partnership with Chaumet and we flew to Monaco. I think you were at Threads at the time. I wasn't. It was just before I started, but I remember seeing it and being like, <gasps> And we flew with like a bunch of couture to the Princess Grace suite in the Hotel de Paris in Monaco, which the suite's like half a million pounds a week or something to rent. And we shot in this with millions of pounds of diamonds. And it was just one of those moments where you look around. It's the same with those trips with Codinas Travel. You look around and you're just like, this is a really amazing opportunity. Like I'm very lucky to be in these environments and these situations and these yeah. places in the world and to have these experiences, which you know, I probably wouldn't have on my own. You know, I'm someone who loves to travel. I love adventure. Yeah. So that's been, you know, a real highlight. And I feel so grateful for those opportunities, even if I was like up at two in the morning, steaming things for the shoot. Like, yeah, I didn't yeah, because I was always so grateful for those opportunities that I had. Yeah, definitely. Also, like they just are such stories to tell. Yeah, totally. And they're, they're adventures. Like, I feel like I've had a lot of adventures in my career, which they really were adventures. Yeah, I think you said earlier, you know, whatever happens, whatever the situation might be, it's an experience and it will teach you something as well. Absolutely. And it helps you grow. And also you learn a lot from the bad in your career. Yeah. I think I've learned the most from bad experiences, things where I didn't do the right thing or I didn't make the right choice or I had a bad manager or something hard happened and they're the moments that I can look back and go that changed how I behaved for the whole rest of my career and that Definitely. really who I am as a manager and as a person now yeah. as well you gain a lot from that for sure also like taking accountability being like at the time when you know you you might have screwed up a bit just to take a step back and be like you know what actually maybe I didn't give it the best I could have or maybe I didn't do as good of a job as I may have done but I can take accountability for it and I know that I'll do a better job next time. Yeah. Coming back to the dream wardrobe of threads, because as I've said earlier, it is most literally the dream wardrobe. If you could pick any item, maybe if you could pick any item currently with yeah. threads, what would okay. it be? <sighs> okay. So for the summer, I want, well, I have just bought, as I said before, the new Hermes black slides. So they're like, really minimal, black H on the front, really chunky sole. I feel like there's something I'll wear 
all summer long, they're yeah. very comfortable, they're a bit clumpy, which isn't too ladylike. I'm not so keen on a ladylike shoe. And you know, they're not a ridiculous price. I mean, everything's relative, as we said earlier. So that's definitely something. And then also, to be honest, I love a Chanel bag. I just, if I'm ever spending on a bag, to be honest, I just wait. I just wait and I wait yeah. and I wait and I buy a Chanel bag. Because yeah. if you can buy one Chanel bag every three years, you're going to be so grateful for that when you're older. I've got three girls. So I've got three little girls who are all going to have Chanel bags when they're older. One each. Oh. And I just don't, I don't like buying trendy things. I don't like buying things that I'm going to hate. You know, I've, I've had all the Gucci bags when I worked at Nesport and I used to get a 50% discount and I used to just buy things. Yeah. And like, you're sick of it so quickly, you know. So you're quickly. Over it. Nothing I've ever bought from Chanel have I got sick of. And if I have, I've sold it and got something else. Yeah. Last question for you. Has there been someone in the industry who has inspired you? And if so, who? So I've never been someone who's been inspired by a look. You know, I'm never someone who's, oh my God, you know, her style is just so inspiring. And, and I recognize beautiful style and I really think that's intrinsic and, and important. But what has inspired me was my first, well, she wasn't my first, she was my manager at Net-A-Porter and her name's Jessica Stewart-Hoyler. She's a very good friend of mine. She now lives in Sydney. And she went from Netaporte, she went to Burberry as star director there. She was the first person who taught me management, I guess. And she was the first person I learned the skills of feedback and communication. And, you know, she would tell me if something was good and she would tell me if something was bad. She was very open and transparent and she was an amazing communicator and very loved by the whole team that she managed. You know, I really felt like she changed my trajectory of my career. And I'd come from this world of like, there's no feedback, there's no HR as we've spoken about. And I came into this role at Netaporte and I, and she gave me very clear right and wrong boundaries, feedback, direction. And when I did well, she celebrated that. And when I didn't do well, she told me in a way that didn't make me feel bad. It made me feel like I understood why I didn't do well. And actually I, I had the tools then to change those decisions. Yeah. And that for me has been the most pivotal moment probably because that was the point I thought, oh my God, I love this. And I love the skills that this is giving me. And I love learning this and I love, and I want to be able to do this to other people. Yeah. And so from that point on, I realized that there was this thing called management and that was a really key part of who I was to become and now for me it's very very important that you know I'm open and I'm transparent and I'm clear and I give direction and I and we celebrate success but we also we also discuss what what goes wrong and if there's a problem I feel something's not right with someone within the business whether they're in my team or not I'll call them out straight away you know I will say to them hey can we have a chat and get them on nowadays it's zoom and you know just say what what's going on like something didn't feel right there like yeah. is there something happening or you know is there something and often it's that something else is happening and it's coming it's manifesting in different ways but I learned that confidence from Jess and I think that has shaped my career more than any kind of stylish woman or stylish man that I've come across yeah to have that feedback I mean I think that's just that's the only way you learn is through knowing when you didn't do something too well but also having praise when you did I really respect my team oh my god I respect them so much and I learned so much from them and that's not just you know my senior fashion editors in my team it's also the fashion intern and the fashion assistant in my team who are brilliant and have yeah. so much to give and also 
everyone in the office. And I, and I really made a decision a long time ago to be nice to everyone. I think that was a really big thing for me. Just be nice. And you've got nothing to lose and be friends with the doorman and be friends with the, you know, the night cleaner. Cause I just don't see why you wouldn't. I really don't. And I think that if the industry was nicer, I think that it would get a lot more out of the people that work within it. And I hope that our generation can shape that industry and make it a lovely and welcoming and kind environment for the next generation too. Despite coming out of that interview and now desperately wanting to get my bags, my hands, oh my God, on <laughs> a Chanel bag, it was so great to talk to Rachel. Thank you so, so much, Rachel, for being a part of the podcast. And yeah, it was just really great catching up with you and hearing all about kind of the ins and outs of what it means to be an editor-in-chief. As always, we will be back next Sunday with a new guest. So make sure you're following us on Instagram at the Fashion Cover Podcast to see who that will be. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at thefashioncupperpodcast at gmail.com. But until then, see you next week. Bye.